Please be sure to visit our Etsy store for some great Warrior Next Door podcast merchandise. And please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Just go to our Facebook page to sign up and receive each series uncut in its entirety. This is the Warrior Next Door podcast, where we share oral histories from veterans whose stories provide an intimate look at world history and how much it still affects us today. All the veterans featured were interviewed by your co-hosts while serving as volunteers for the Library of Congress. Our interviews, over 200 in total, were conducted with veterans who live in our cities, our neighborhoods, and often right next door to us. You can listen to the full-length, unedited interviews from each veteran we feature on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Come join us. We're completely out of sorts today. I am completely out of sorts today because I'm so excited about being able to share with our audience a very special interview that we've conducted. Um, I'm excited because all of our stuff worked on the first try <laughs> on the IT side. I am very excited, although a little hesitant to say that out loud because the gremlins will probably pop up. Oh, so you just, so. you jinxy cat the crap out of this thing, right? Yeah. So for, <laughs> for all your next door listeners, this whole thing is produced, edited, everything by Ryan and I. And I think this is the first time ever in the three years ever. that we've been doing this that we have fired up a remote session and not had major technical <laughs> difficulties. So, you know, Ryan's got the soundboard on his side, so I'm giving him kudos. It looks like we finally worked through something oh, yeah. uh, that we've been struggling I'm with. I'm totally awesome. You are amazing. I'm totally awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, it reinforces the whole idea of gratitude when things work because we have not taken for granted that things will work around here. <laughs> but but back to what we have for you, for you warrior next door listeners um as as many of you may know and if you don't know by all means you should know the uh new mini series that is produced by uh Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg called Masters of the Air just dropped on Apple TV on January 26th and we're recording this particular episode on January 27th the day after uh, the first two of a nine-part series was dropped on Apple TV. Uh, the the Hank Spielberg juggernaut has produced Band of Brothers and then the Pacific, and now this is seen as a companion to that. Uh, this features the air war over Europe during World War II, and mm-hmm. it is based on a novel written by Donald L. Miller. Now, Donald L. Miller, Ryan, as you know, I've been a big fan of his. He is he is my Stephen Ambrose. I can remember the first time I heard of Donald Miller was, geez, when we were first starting to collect interviews in the early 2000s, I was watching the History Channel when they actually like had history shows on the History Channel. It was amazing to yep. see that. And they had a well-known historian, I can't remember his name now, and he got a question from the audience. The audience was, hey, if I had to read one book 
on World War II, what would it be? And he said without hesitation, Donald L. Miller, The Story of World War II. Well, that piqued my interest, and I bought that book, and I read it, and I think he's right. And I think the reason that the reason I'm so drawn to Donald Miller's um, work is because he uses liberally well-researched, firsthand, personal accounts to help reinforce the narrative. In other words, he uses oral histories. And Ryan, what do we do? We do oral histories. Oh. Uh- we do oral histories, don't we? We do oral histories as well, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> if, if anyone's listened to The Warrior Next Door for more than three or four episodes, you'll know that we are passionate about collecting oral histories, generally from people in our neighborhood. That's why it's called The Warrior Next Door. People just around us, right? It's not like we've had to travel the world to find them, although at the end of the day, Ryan and I have traveled all over the country collecting these interviews. But what I loved about Donald Miller is that he used these oral histories you would he would state a specific you know statistic or whatnot about something about the air war and then immediately followed up with someone on the ground uh, in Germany who would have experienced these sorts of things so imagine our surprise when we have the opportunity on our little corner of podcastdom to have Donald <laughs> freaking Miller on our show. Ryan, tell the audience how this happened. Well, first of all, we peed our pants. Oh, a lot. Whenever that happened. (laughs) (laughs) So anyone who's listened to our, our show for a while, and and maybe you haven't, but you've been going back and kind of catching up on our previous series. We did a series on a B-17 pilot named Harold Dunn, who uh, was um, shot down over Germany and was a prisoner of war in Stalag Luft Three. Well, one of the acquaintances that I've, a, a person I've known for probably, uh, I mean, at least 20 years is a, a woman named Marilyn Walton, yeah. who is uh, very well known in the research circles. Um, she's written her own book called Rhapsody and Junk, but she is a, one of the foremost um, people that are knowledgeable on, the POW experience and about her father's unit um, that that Harold Dunn actually flew yeah. in. So, um, long story short, uh, we've been you know we had Marilyn on as a guest co-host for the Harold Dunn series. Uh, she is a excellent person, one of the best people you're ever going to meet in your life. Um, and so, she has uh, took a shining to to Tony and I, I guess, for and, reasons we'll never uh, know. A quality person like Marilyn with with friends in high places actually like wallows with the white trash of the internet. But please continue, Ryan. <laughs> the punk rockers the punk of the podcast exactly. world, right? Yeah. So so uh anyway, she said, Hey, um, I've got a few people that you guys might want to interview after the first of the year. I'm like, oh, okay. And, you know, uh she sent us four. Actually, well, three, and then we 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 connected with a fourth one on our own, but it was also through her in a separate. It was a weird deal, but uh, um, so anyway, one of them was Donald Miller, <laughs> and we we were both flabbergasted that we would have uh, an opportunity to speak with him. So, um, so that's kind of how this whole thing happened, and then Tony. And I'm not sure this was the best idea, idea, but we had Tony reach out to oh, yeah. him and be the guy who would make contact with Donald. And he still met with us after that. So, Tony, tell us how 
the uh, the uh, conversation went whenever you tried to reach out to oh, them. Oh, well, we paid, we played phone tag. I wouldn't I wouldn't say phone tag. We played, hey, I'm trying to reach out to you and couldn't really get a response. <laughs> and then finally, <laughs> finally we connected. It was really weird. It was on January 17th. Um, and so uh, in 2024, this year. So, yep. you know, for the, for the audience, January 26th is when Masters of the Air is being released, just a little over a week later. So you can imagine how busy he 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 was, and yet he answered the phone. I'm beginning to think he thought it was someone else. I swear, because when I when I when I, when I thought, it's likely. Well, it's likely because when I when I finally connected with him, and I said, "Hey, I'm Tony Lupo. I'm with the Warrior Next Door. We're a podcast, and we were connected with you." And he kind of interrupted a little bit. He's like, "Hey, you know, I've got an interview coming up in a few minutes. Will you call me back in an hour and a half?" I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. And I'm thinking, man, he just must be inundated right now with all these news organizations and whatnot wanting to get his take uh, uh, as the new series based on his book is coming up. So an hour and a half, I call him up. He answers the phone, and I cut right to the chase. I go, hey, you know, we were we were connected to you through someone named Marilyn Walton. That's the equivalent. Of when you're a salesman, you stick your foot in the door before they can slam yes. it. <laughs> because I was prattling on as a fanboy, and then I said that, and then he got quiet. And he goes, all right, I'll tell you what. He goes, you want to do an interview? It's like, yeah. He goes, how about tonight? He goes, let's just go ahead and knock it out. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I know what knock it out means, but that's okay. That's where we are, right? That we're not like, you know, we're not, we're not like, you know, CNN calling him up to ask him questions about this. So he said he'll give he can give us 15 minutes of his time and I was happy with 5 minutes of his time and so he said we're going to do it tonight. So we did it that night. We gathered the forces, we called him up. We started off it was 15 minutes, then it went to a half hour, then it went to 45 minutes. We've got an hour and 40 minutes of Donald Miller telling us and he's going to be sharing with our audience. We're going to be playing these clips shortly. Everything from his philosophy towards writing and using oral histories to why he became interested in writing history to, to, to in the way that he does to how he may, got contacted with or connected with Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks and that whole constellation of producers that make this amazing content. And, and, and what's really amazing is when we were done, he was he seemed to be content or happy with the fact that it was very conversational. He could tell we were interested. And he's agreed to come back on the show after Masters of the Air. So it's going to be two parts to this. Part one is going to be this one, pre-Masters of the Air. You're going to get to know Donald Miller and what he did. And then we're going to hopefully uh, have another interview, this time with Marilyn Walton and Donald Miller, to talk about Masters yeah. of the Air and maybe some of his upcoming projects, which he alluded to during this interview, what his next thing is going to be. So I, I have visions in my head of Tony as a used vacuum cleaner salesman. <laughs> Knocking on Donald Miller's door, and he looks like Bugs Bunny from one of those old cartoons with a with a baggy suit on and the shoes that are too big and and a suitcase, and he sticks his foot in the door, and lo and behold, Tony pulls off the sale. Right, it, so we this was a fantastic thing. So congratulations, a good job, and it it turned out great. Oh man, it was it was so awesome. I mean, for for, for our audience, <laughs> for me at least, and maybe for some members of the audience who are also fans of Donald Miller. This, to me, is akin at, to having Stephen Ambrose on our show right before Band of Brothers launches. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's right up there with that. So we've got some clips 
We're going to add some uh, editorial comments here and there, but you're going to hear a lot more of Donald Miller than you are of us. So I don't know, Ryan, is there anything else that we need to kick around before we start sharing these? I think we kick it. I think we go. Okay, audience. So here's clip one. Sit back and enjoy. Could you tell us what gave you the idea or the impetus or the motivation to write this book to begin with? Well, I I didn't write it for the series. That's for sure. (laughs) Uh, The call to make it part of the series came out of the blue from Steven Spielberg. And, uh, but way back when, if you go back to um, a little biography here, if you go back to the story of World War II, which was my first World War II book, the, um, uh, I hadn't written a book on World War II up till then. I'd written six books. Uh, it wasn't that I was uninterested in the war. I, I grew up in a war family, if you will. Uh, my father served in the, uh, in the Air Force, and my uncle was with the big red one. He was in the first two minutes of D-Day on the landings on Omaha Beach. And I had an uncle that flew uh, the B-29s against Tokyo and you name it. And uh, so we had, you know, their old army chests with their old uniforms and everything up in my grandma's attic. And we'd play with that as kids. And so it was always part of our lives. I grew up in a small working class neighborhood where pretty much everybody mostly steel workers and coal miners had, you know, had served in the war and it was a real part of our lives. My dad was president of Catholic war veterans and, and uh, not that there was a lot of talk about, about the war. Um, They, they kept that talk largely to themselves, you know? And um, so I didn't, I didn't get a lot, you know, from that. My, my uncle liked to talk about cutting off the ears of, of Moroccans, but, you know, that was, about, that, was about, that was about it and uh, how he hated George Patton and how he hated the Red Cross because uh, their ship, their troop ship from Africa to England, where they were going to train for the invasion, sunk in the Red Cross when they pulled him out of the drink, charged him a nickel for a coffee. And he never <laughs> forgot that. That's a, he mentioned World War Two, and he'd start talking about the Red Cross. And, <laughs> But anyway, you know, when my father passed away in 96, I really started to think a lot, especially at his funeral, about how I had really missed an opportunity um, to uh, to write a, you know, a book that that would really absorb me. And um, I was living in eastern Pennsylvania and. we're not far, uh, right down the hill here is uh, where Lou Rita Studios. You know Lou at all? He's a documentarian. Mm-hmm. And, I do. And Lou said, come on down to the studio. You know, I got some really interesting guys down here. And one of them in particular will interest you. And, and that was Eugene Sledge. Oh, cool. that's, that, that's when I met Sledge, with, along with, uh, he'd come up with Ron Pascal and Joe Alexander. And uh, wow, I thought this is sensational. And he gave a two day interview that was mind blowing. Well, one of the first things I want to mention is, uh, you know, he talked about how um, at his dad's funeral, he realized he missed an opportunity here to to document 
you know, really to talk to his dad quite a bit about the, the war and his experiences, which perhaps he did, but maybe not to the level that he would have liked to have done for potentially writing a book about it. Um, and, you know, that's funny because that's exactly what Marilyn Walton did. Her father started developing, uh, uh, I think it was dementia, or he had some health issues towards the end of his life. <clears throat> and she started realizing that she was going to be losing him in the near future. And so she started doing her own research. Anyway, long story short, she wrote her book, Rhapsody in Junk. That's really an homage to her father, yeah. as well as all the bomber crews. And so, um, you know, that's tough to do whenever it happens quickly, yeah. you know, but when you've got a, when you see the end coming and it's a few years away, uh, it allows you to hopefully gather your thoughts a bit and do that. So, uh, I, I empathized with him whenever I heard him talking about how he missed an opportunity there because, um, luckily Marilyn was able to capitalize, I mean, so to speak on, on her ability to capture his story while he was still alive and explain some of the research she had done and get his feedback on some of it. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Both both you and I, Ryan, have people in our lives who were veterans uh, who who served in World War II, and in your case, well, in both of our cases, the Vietnam War, that as young men, as boys, actually, we really yeah. looked up to their service in a way that kind of kind of hooked us, kind of got us into this whole idea of trying to understand, you know, that period of history that our relatives um, were a major part of. And I'll speak to for, for my own, uh, you know, personally, is I've always regretted not recording my grandfather Dion on my mom's side, who was on USS Colorado during World War II, um, recording the stories he shared with me. I have them, they're in my mind, but they can't be shared readily nor as objectively, right? Because now you're hearing it secondhand from from me as opposed to from him. So I thought it was really interesting how that was something that also drove him to write the first history book he wrote, The Story of World War II. Um, the other thing that um, I thought was interesting was, <laughs> you know, the access that that book gave him as he started. Um, you know, first off, he's a historian. He's an author. He's a New York Times bestseller. And a, and a professor, and that gave him access to people like Eugene Sledge. He talked about hanging out with <laughs> Eugene Sledge for a couple of days um, at at a at a, a recording studio in New York that basically specializes in recording these documentaries and these in these oral histories. So, Ryan, sure, if our audience doesn't know who Eugene Sledge uh, is, let them know what time. Yeah. It is. yeah. So. So Eugene Sledge, he that's actually one of the first books that I had heard about that was considered one of the most riveting and poignant and legit firsthand experiences of a Marine in the Pacific from a boots-on-the-ground approach. And his book was called With the Old Breed at Peleliu in Okinawa. And, you know, he was featured, he was one of the guys featured in the Pacific yep. series that, that Hanks and Spielberg did. Um, and... His story, I thought was, I personally, I thought was the best of the three in the Pacific series because it was, he wasn't famous like John Bassalone was. Uh, he wasn't famous like the author, um, that, who's the other guy that wrote, that was, in the, that was featured in the Pacific? Yep. Lecky, Robert yep. Lecky. Um, so it, it was his, his book was a, was one yep. book he wrote and it was his autobiography, you know, and, um, but, but yeah, that book, um, for anybody out there who wants an unflinching 
shocking um, narrative of what it was like day to day in in the Marine Corps on these Pacific islands, especially Peleliu, which was known to be brutal. Yeah. I mean, they're all brutal. Don't get me wrong. But Peleliu was particularly um, grueling campaign that uh, has a lot of shocking elements to it. So that that when he mentions Eugene Sledge, Tony and I both we were gasped. like, holy crap. Huh? I mean, that's like yeah. for our audience who may not know who Eugene Sledge is, it would be like spending two days with Dick Winters from Band of Brothers. And yeah, and in and right. in the book Masters of the Air, the Eugene Sledge slash Dick Winters in Masters of the Air is a guy named Rosie Rosenthal and John Egan and Gail Cleveland. Probably the three of those are the ones that he uses, he being Donald Miller, more than any other of the individuals that he features in the book through the oral histories he's had with them. To, to reinforce the story and the narrative of them. And the other thing that's interesting, Ryan, that you just said is what you really liked about Eugene Sledge's book is he was a guy. He was a ground pounder, right? He wasn't some famous dude, right? You know, like Barcelona or whatnot. That's the whole warrior next door ethos. We enjoy those sort of stories more than, say, the generals or the, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I mean, and honestly, uh, Robert Lecky and John Baslone were both ground pounders at the time in their service. Right. They just did. They just later on became famous. Baslone for his Medal of Honor on Guadalcanal, and then later dying on Iwo Jima. Um, he was on a big war bonds tour after he after what he did in Guadalcanal with the machine yeah. guns and and everything. Um, and so, you know, I he he wasn't famous before the war. He and neither was Lecky, uh, but. Since then, Eugene Sledge is known just for its one yeah. book and this one action. And Eugene Sledge didn't—he didn't win a Medal of Honor, or a Silver Star, or any no. of that. It to me, what's amazing about Eugene Sledge's book is—is is it takes you to the average day-to-day existence of a corporal trying to survive these hellacious fights, and they end up to me, and and probably you, Ryan being more compelling than a high-level narrative about Douglas MacArthur yeah. and, his, and his march across the Pacific. Oh, I find these a lot more compelling to read because it's, it's uh, I think, the ultimate realism. It's the fine detail of what life was like as opposed to the high flyover sort of Perfettamente. thing. Perfettamente. So we're going to roll to the next <laughs> clip where, because these oral histories are kind of the bond that we have with Donald Miller, the reason we're such fans of his, he's going to talk a lot more about that. And uh, and that got me going. That got me thinking about using oral histories. And maybe um, uh, Henry Steele Commager had a book that was on Lou's desk, you know, about about the war that he wrote during the war. So it was couldn't be a complete history. But I like the title, The Story of World War II, although um, it, it it really wasn't Commager's book. I don't know how the hell he got on the title, but. Anyway, um, we used, I mean, we used the title, but we didn't use just about anything from commentary. And I interviewed Airmen in that, and the Air War has a real pull to it because it's so different, um, air combat from ground combat, in ways that are obvious, but other ways that are less obvious and that are crucially important in terms of you know, how men fight and how they can fight and how they survive. So um, I did that book. I thought it was my way of uh, teaching myself World War II history, if you will. And uh, 
I thought I'd do it. Through. I'd never done a book using a lot of oral history testimonies. And, um, and I thought, um, although I had used oral histories in, in other books, but not quite in that way. And I liked the way it, it, I liked the way it turned out, the immediacy of the, um, uh, of the impressions of the guys. And I thought the key is how do you integrate narrative history with oral history in a seamless fashion so that the transition to the interview isn't jarring, but um, is consonant, you know, uh, with the, uh, with, with the narrative you're, you're spitting out and really worked hard on doing that. I think my work as a newspaper reporter for the Washington Post helped. We always used a lot of quotes, and um, uh, Ben Bradley was the editor then, and those were the Watergate days. And, and, and he stressed that, you know, he said, you know, you got to get people speaking in these stories, or people aren't going to believe the story. It gives the story veracity. And uh, so I started working on that, on that idea of bringing the, bringing the person uh, who you're writing about forward as rather than the author forward. And uh, so I've been working on that ever since. Um, that was a good start, a training round and that sort of thing. And used the concept in Masters of the Year. Um, Masters was not that hard to do in a sense of collecting the material because of Maxwell Field and the archives down there. I mean, there are tremendous oral histories down there. And um, in addition, the Library of Congress, of course, is a great source. And I was living in Washington, D.C., of course. You know, I mean, the nexus, you know, uh, American history. And uh, easy access to this sort of stuff. And um, began to interview veterans at the University of Maryland as well, um, who were on the faculty. And uh, so it, you know, that, that, that's kind of, kind of how it started. And then I decided to do the book after. <clears throat> this is, this is so amazing, right? First off, he's interviewing people just like we are. So it's one thing to be a historian and just dig through, you know, after action recounts and intelligent reports and just write a narrative. But I thought it was interesting, this little inside baseball for our audience, for me, for you, Ryan, which is, the re one of the things that allowed him to be so effective was his training as a journalist at the Washington Post during Watergate, by the way. He knew all those guys. <laughs> all right. So anyway, during Washington Post, where he had this journalistic style, where he was taught early on that if you want to reinforce a narrative, you know, you quote the people who were there. If you want to make it less about the author and more about the history quote the people that are there. And then he specifically mentions the Library of Congress. Ryan, you and I have been voluntary, uh -huh. are, are still volunteers for the Library of Congress, but for over two decades now, how much did it warm your heart to hear that people are actually going to these archives and using them for things like this? Well, I mean, these are the sort of things that, you know, as a, as a nerd with this thing, <laughs> um, that that I would had always hoped would happen someday, yeah. and it hasn't. But at the same time, I would love to see a a veteran that I interviewed that I submitted his story to Library of Congress end up in a book by a Donald Miller, 
you know, um, or, or, a uh, uh, John McManus or, or anyone like that, you know, um, and, and there's a chance that that'll happen. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is a, a big source of information for them. You know, he mentioned Maxwell field and how they have a lot yeah. of, of information. Do you know what he's speaking of that? That's new. I, to me. I only know cause I read the book. Maxwell field is located in Montgomery, Alabama, and they have an incredible, uh, library there and um, repository for all things uh, Air Force. And it, it's it's like one of the places you kind of need to visit if you're going to do any sort of uh, um, research on on the Army Air Force or the U.S. Air Force after that. So, and yeah. the other thing that I thought was okay. interesting, so, you know, from what you're saying, the reason we started this podcast is because we had, we were afraid that these people that we interviewed would not have a voice, that they'd end up being stuck in some repository and never see the light of day. So what we're trying to do with this podcast, and we said this on an earlier podcast, is we're trying to res- resurrect these ghosts. We're trying to bring these people back, make them alive again, and share them with people. And so it, it's really cool. There's more than one way to do it. One way is have a podcast or so, whatnot. But to see these authors and these miniseries <clears throat> write books and make movies using these firsthand accounts is 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 really is really heartwarming. And another thing, Ryan, it reinforces the this this thing, this mission, this vision that you and I have which is there's nothing special about us. Anyone can go out with an iPhone now or a Samsung Galaxy or whatever smartphone you have and record oral histories from a whole variety of different historical events that have occurred. It doesn't have to be World War II or Vietnam. It can be about, you know, the race riots in Detroit or Los Angeles. It can be about Rodney King or 9-11 or, the, or whatever. So I thought, to me, that was the other part of this, is if, if you're a volunteer and you're recording these, these can be a resource someday. And that alone, mm-hmm. to me, is really adds fuel to the fire for for me to continue to conduct these interviews and send them to the Library of Congress. Totally agree. I was just going to say that uh, um, with with the Marta Warner series that we did, yeah. um, she was she did not serve in the American military, so I tried to you know contact the Veterans History Project to see if I could submit her story just to the American Folklife Center because she is a U.S. citizen now, but. There was there was some issues with that apparently because she wasn't here yep. at the time. I, I mean, so there, you know, some of this stuff, um, you know, it, it sometimes doesn't have a, a place yet at the American Folklife Center, the Library of Congress. But um, w- hopefully they'll be figuring that out. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that um, you know it, this also speaks back to what Tony and I have said a number of times which is encouraging our listeners to go out and interview uh interview people yeah. um and uh you know because you know at the end of the day we're all trying to document history and maybe one of the interviews that you do could end up in a book by a well-known historian wouldn't that be And awesome? if there's no repository for it cuz Ryan I've read in that as well with some of the German soldiers I've interviewed they won't accept those in the at the Library of Congress which I think is weird because they're <clears throat> they're veterans and are American citizens now uh, but at any rate they can also have a repository with our own families I mean you heard Donald Miller say that he missed an opportunity to really record and preserve some of these experiences from people in his family yeah. so um 
Or even local museums, local libraries would accept that material. Yeah, yeah totally. So. so did we stop here and spend a little time on it? You bet. Why? Because it's beautifully and perfectly aligned with what Ryan and my vision and mission for this podcast are. And it's just awesome to hear someone like Donald Miller, you know, appreciate that as well. So so now we're going to, you know, switch gears a bit. Uh, the next clip is going to be a bit more about the book and some of the things he learned in researching for it. I read a uh, a piece uh, by a guy named Grinker, and it's in my bibliography, and uh, Men Under Stress. And it's not the kind of book that a layman would pick up and sit down and, and read and for enjoyment or anything else. Grinker was an Air Force psychologist during the war. He flew with the men because um, he needed to understand them. And indeed, to understand the trauma, he had to see it exhibiting himself, exhibiting itself in the planes and the kind of things that precipitated it. So he has these this case study after case study of airmen who either broke down in combat or broke down in combat and they were able to bring them around and get them up again as flyers or were completely unsuccessful which was the case with a lot of the guys, as Grinker admits. And uh, um, and largely, he said, kind of, the effort was a failure. I mean, it, it was so difficult to ha- have them overcome the traumas, the deep kind of traumas that they were experiencing, which he thought, he had done some work in North Africa, and he said, you know, the combat vets down there, and there was a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder down there, it wasn't called that then. Combat fatigue was the word. And he had worked with those guys after Kasserin Pass. And when he started working with the airmen, he said, my God, it's very different. And those guys wear down. And he uses the word like an army truck. You can get about 50,000 miles out of them. You can only get so many days out of a combat veteran. And uh, at the same time, I was reading um, The Anatomy of Courage by Winston Churchill's, um, well, it was Winston Churchill's doctor and Lord Moran. And uh, he had served in World War I as a, as a combat uh, officer on the front line and as what was then called a psychiatric officer. And uh, he handled these kind of problems. And he makes the point about courage, for example. He gets into fear as well as courage. Those are the two main themes that he deals with that. You know, the average guy only has so much courage. It's like a bank deposit. And I mentioned this in, in the story of World War II. Um, and uh, I mentioned this in Masters in the Air. And when you use it up, you're done. You become kind of a ragman, uh, incapable of functioning properly. You won't in combat and he said with airmen the precipitant is usually a it cannot be only one it can be as as few as one traumatic incident one overwhelmingly mental shakeup and that can trigger this Um, and the way you exhibit it is a little bit different than uh, a combat guy might just go absolutely crazy and be maybe manning an artillery station and run out in the field, 
right into German fire and start picking flowers or something. He took something absolutely whacked out and really needed a lot of help. With an airman, um, they got catatonic a lot and um, they froze up and um, they experienced um, traumas uh, and physical afflictions that are a lot like Parkinson's disease, the shakes and things like that. So you could watch for this really closely. And uh, Grinker points out, along with some other, I've read a lot of combat surgeons on the war, some of the reports, uh, Maxwell, uh, the archives are replete with these reports, how the combat surgeon, like at 12 o'clock high, if you recall, would go to the bar and watch the guys, you know, and see if they're a little uh, jumpy, um, maybe they're over aggressive, uh, physically, sexually, uh, you know, maybe there's a there's a shooting incident on the base. Um, there's there's ways that you can almost see this sort of stuff that a guy's kind of unraveling, and, uh, and it happens pretty quickly. So, I I really appreciate this part of Masters of the Air and the story of World War II from Donald Miller. And I would argue after reading recently Masters of the Air, where he spends a lot of time talking about courage and the psychology of being a soldier, I think what I learned is that the 8th Air Force was way ahead of the other um, the other services when it came to trying to understand what battle fatigue meant, right? So we just didn't call it, you know, lack of moral fortitude or lack of courage or whatnot. And and personally, my interest in this has gone way back. I remember reading a book uh, from John Keegan called The Face of Battle, where he would talk about accounts written from battles back in Angicourt and all, I mean, back in the, you know, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries to basically draw parallels to how men, how human beings, it's a book about the human condition, deal or try to try to overcome or compensate for what they're exposed to that's outside the realm of their day-to-day existence. And we'd call it, you know, back in World War II, they'd say that once you've had one of these incidents, you got that thousand-yard stare. And I, I thought it was really interesting how he said a couple of things that were that I thought were, were something I had not read or heard about before. One is the whole idea that you have a reservoir of courage that each person has a tank and once you've withdrawn so much from this tank you're spent you became a, you become a rag doll you get that thousand yard stare and the other thing i learned is you could have one horrific incident that can wreck you and it reminded me of listening to one of our very early interviews of frank DeSico when he was uh, a bombardier and he was training another bombardier in the nose of a b-17 and his best friend was in front of him and he was standing behind him in the bomber. His friend's name was Katz and flat came up, hit the nose of the airplane and blew pieces of his friend all over him. And these sort of things would have happened relatively commonly during the air war. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so think about the, the, the number, the opportunities that exist in any war that are reinforced by what he shares with Matt in Masters of the Air, 
for you to just get wrecked but just one thing mm-hmm. i mean ryan have mm-hmm. you ever have you ever read that when when you you're reading a book about a historical event or something about world war 2 and you read about something horrific have you ever sat back and it's like how would i have overcome that well your fear is that you don't yeah. your fear is that you crack up right then and there and you curl up into a ball and, yeah, and that's it. <laughs> sob like a yeah. baby um you know um we all marvel at uh guys who uh perform well under stress and uh wonder if we could do that ourselves I, and let alone seeing your best friend or your buddy your foxhole buddy killed right next yeah. to you and 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 everything you know he mentions you know how some of these guys would do crazy things in under under stressful conditions and it just didn't make sense and as soon as he said that, it reminded me of that really interesting scene in The Thin Red Line. Oh, yeah. Where the fella is on the side of the that, – that, that's a fictionalized account of a battle that happened in Guadalcanal, okay? This movie came out in 1998 and had an all-star cast. Uh, Sean Penn, Adrian Brody, Jim Cavazil, George Clooney, jo- John Cusack – Woody Harrelson, John C. Riley, who was in Step Brothers with Will Ferrell. <laughs> anyway, John Travolta, lots of people. Anyway, in that book or in that movie, I think it was Jim Cavazil that played the role, the guy on the side of the hill in this grass, and he sees this little fern, and he touches the fern, and it kind of like collapses around his finger. I that. And he was just like lost in that for a bit. And I think that's exactly what he's talking about there, where it's like it's escapism. It's going to a different world so that you can escape where you're at right now, because these guys, it's an act of self-defense. It's an act of self-preservation. They can't control 100 percent their self-preservation, but they can control where their mind goes briefly. Maybe they can't. I don't know. I've never been in a situation like that. But um, that's what it reminded me of when he said that. And I was like, you know. Um, that was a scene that always to this day, I remember vividly in my head and it really struck me when I saw it. I'm like, that is a peculiar. Why would he do that? Well, it makes sense now. It, and it, it's, the book was written by a combat veteran and he's going to understand those things. And Ryan, I remember that scene very, very vividly as well. And thinking the same thing. It's like when you're facing being killed, all the little things that you just take for granted, start to ripen. I, I, I think that's a perfect example. So, yeah. well, um, now we're going to move on. The, the next clip is going to feature uh, an individual named Rosie Rosenthal, who, um, well, you know what? I'm just going to let Donald Miller say it. Well, we hate to do it to you, but we got to stop somewhere, and we figured we'd do it right here. <laughs> so you'll have to wait till next week to hear a lot more about the person that Donald Miller described as being most responsible for his decision to write a book about the 8th Air Force, which is, of course, Masters of the Air, currently being played on Apple TV. The series was produced by Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg. I've watched the first three episodes. It is phenomenal. Please join us next week for more insights, special exclusive insights, maybe. We don't know that Donald Miller has when it comes to uh, his writing style, the oil plan, and what it was like to be on the receiving end of the growing 8th Air Force bombing missions. Until then.
Well, we have some uh, some good news for us <laughs> and hopefully our listeners because we continue to get financial support from people who seem to enjoy the content we provide. And by doing that, it allows us to continue to, I don't know, to, to share these stories with a wider audience, to, to grow, to develop our reach. And I'd like to name specifically some of our more recent subscribers. Um, the first one is uh, Steve uh, Bickler, B-I-C-H-L-E-R. And um, I recognize his name. He, uh, If you're listening to the Aziz uh, series that's playing right now, uh, he is the interpreter from Iraq who served alongside the armed forces. Steve was one of the individuals that Aziz served alongside. So he and I have been in contact. Uh, he doesn't live too far away. And hopefully we'll get a chance to sit down and have some beers together. Uh, another donation or subscription came in from someone named Rich. Uh, that's all he left on there. We want to thank you, Rich. We received uh, one from Joseph. Is it Plordy? Plordy? P-L-O-U-R-D-E. Uh, thank you, Joseph. And Priscilla Forney. Um, she is the granddaughter of Frank McClellan, and for those who may have listened over the holidays to the American St. Nick audiobook version, uh, she was one of the authors um, and someone that we've been able to get in contact through the author of the book, American St. Nick, uh, by Peter Lyon. And we also received uh, our first inquiry of this sort, which forced us to to kind of fix, uh, I guess, a hole we had. And um, this came from Jesse Lund. And Jesse Lund wrote, um, Hey guys, regular listener here. Is there an option to just make a one-time donation? I can't find it. Well, you couldn't find it because we didn't have one, but we do now. It's on our website. If you kick on or click on the donate button on the very top uh, header, it'll take you to a PayPal site where if you have, you know, five, six, ten bucks, whatever it is to uh, help us continue to produce uh, content. We'd appreciate it. And then when we replied that, hey, yeah, we do have something now, and he did donate, and it's great. He wrote back, sounds great. Just sent you 50 bucks. I really love the, po- the podcast. You two are hysterical. And though it's inappropriate to discuss politics, I like that I get the sense that you two aren't of the jingoistic type of guys honoring these troops. And that is true. We do try to keep politics out of it as much as we can, but it's difficult. Um, it's so intertwined with history is kind of the political zeitgeist that causes politicians to make certain decisions. And we certainly honor our nation veterans, but at the same time, we try to be clear-eyed and objective about you know mistakes that the United States and the policymakers uh, have made uh, in various conflicts. And so I'm glad, Jesse, that you recognize that's something that's important to us. And and so we thank you for your support and um, look forward to um, hopefully you guys enjoying some of the content that is going to be dropping later this year, which we think is some of our best. Thank you for listening.